wherever we are together, that is home. A house doesn't make a home. Home is where the heart is. God bless this home. Three hallmark proverbs and one blessing. Maybe you have seen one of these posted in the home that you grew up with, grew up in. Or maybe you have one posted in your home now, or maybe as you've been cruising through Target or Hobby Lobby, you've seen it posted on a sign. But here's what's behind these proverbs. Here's what's behind this blessing. Here's what they tell us. Home is a big and often complicated subject and word. And whether we come and go from a home, whether we are homebound or we are homeless, we all recognize that home is more than a physical residence, more than a place, more than brick, mortar, concrete, drywall, and lumber. Home is really about people, isn't it? But that's what makes home so complicated. So maybe when you think of the word home, you, you're filled with joy, safety, happiness, thoughts of family and warmth. Or maybe when you think of home, you think of brokenness and pain, discomfort or abuse. Whether positive or negative, home, family, is a big and often complicated subject. But what does home and family, particularly spiritual family, have to do with Paul's letter to the Ephesians? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to continue in our summer series this morning through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And thus far in the letter, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been showing us how the wisdom, mystery, and grace of Christ has been revealed through the people of Christ, the church. And then in chapter 1, we read of how God has blessed and redeemed his church in Christ. In the second half of chapter 1, Paul took us into the school of prayer. And he showed us that Christian prayer is filled with intercession and benediction and exaltation of Christ. Then in chapter 2, building on these truths, Paul showed us that by grace, God mercifully makes the spiritually dead alive. And he makes the stranger a citizen and saint of God's kingdom. And he showed us how through the gospel of Jesus crucified and resurrected, the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, Israel and non-Israel has been torn down. And how unity has come. There's no inside and outside. And the law that once separated within God's people, even the temple being a segregated place before Christ, has all been brought down and abolished. And what is the result? a new, a multi-ethnic, multicultural humanity has been born by the word, gospel, and spirit, and it's called the church. 
Then in the first half of chapter 3, Paul showed us that the mystery of this blessing and redemption and unity and gospel that was once concealed in the Old Testament has now been revealed in the new, in the person and work of Jesus, and that work is made visible through the church global and the church local. And Paul has made two things abundantly clear in this letter. Number one, Jesus changes everything. And number two, Jesus and his body, his people, his family, the church, have always been front and center in God's redemptive plan to display his manifold wisdom before heaven and earth. Paul has invited us to a larger view of Christ, a larger view of the gospel, and a larger view of the church, who is, as we've seen throughout this letter thus far, the true home and dwelling place of God. And that home, that family is spirit-filled with the strength and presence and power of God himself. And that brings us to our passage this morning. So if you have your Bible, please open it to the letter of Ephesians. The letter of Ephesians. It's a little over halfway through the New Testament. If you go past First and Second Corinthians and hang a slight right, you will safely arrive in the car park of Ephesians. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one under a seat near you. You can find Ephesians on page 917. 917. Please turn with me to chapter 3. We're going to be walking through Paul's second prayer in this letter found in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. And you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. And this is the best part of the sermon right here. This is it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word to the church. All glory be to God. Let's say that together. All glory be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive in to our passage. Father, I have nothing extraordinary to say, but you do. And we ask now that you would speak to us through your living and active word. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts, renew our minds, open our eyes to behold the glory of Christ and strengthen your imperfect and weak servant now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, to guide our time this morning through this prayer, if you're taking notes, here's the big idea and the outline. Here it is. 
We are fully dependent upon God to fill us with his strength, presence, and power. We are fully dependent upon God to fill us with his strength, presence, and power. And here's the outline of the prayer. We're going to look at the strength of God in verses 14 through 16, the presence of God in 17 through 19, and then the power of God in verses 20 through 21. So point one, the strength of God, verses 14 through 16. After plumbing the depths of God's glorious life-giving and unifying work in Ephesians chapter 2, in chapter 3, verse 1, as we saw last week, Paul launches into a prayer, and he starts with the words, for this reason, I, Paul. But he gets sideswiped, kind of interrupted by a train of thought, the same train of thought that he was just writing on in Ephesians chapter 2. And in our passage this morning, Paul picks that prayer back up with those words repeated again. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Flowing from Paul's heart of humility displayed in this chapter and modeling what it is to pray with boldness and confidence through faith, as he just wrote in verse 12. He prays. He humbly goes before God, the Father, in prayer. Beloved, Christian prayer is where humble dependency and God's strength and mercy meet. Christian prayer is where our humble dependency and God's strength and mercy meet. And Paul prays before the Father, who is, verse 15, not just a Father, but the Father, from whom every family on earth and in earth and heaven is named. God is community. God is Trinity. God is a family, Father, Son, and Spirit. And He has created image-bearing families in His image to reflect Him and his triune family. For God the Father is creator father of all people. And he is the father that is good and gracious, steadfast and strong. Now I know that many of you in this room have lost your earthly fathers or you have a poor relationship with your earthly father. Relationship that's marked by pain and by loss, by absence. But I have great news for you. I have good news for you. The Father, this heavenly Father, is the true and better Father. He is our heavenly Father, a comforting Father, a protecting Father. And where our earthly fathers fail, where earthly fathers fail, He never fails, never fails. He remains faithful. And we have this assurance, why? Because Paul models for us in this prayer that he is fully able to both answer prayer and he is fully worth running to in prayer. And we should recognize a key point in these verses that families with a present and leading father figure are a picture of God's goodness and plan for the whole world. This is his plan for the whole world. 
And so in a world of confusion about fatherhood and family, may we all continue to look to this good father. And may we continue to look to his word for clarity and a proper definition of what a father and what a family is. Paul here is talking about the global fatherhood of God over all families on earth. But we need to remember that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church. He's writing to spiritual families, spiritual families in Ephesus and the spiritual family here in Edgewood. And so he writes, I pray to the Father, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is Paul's prayer for the church. This is his prayer for our church. And I love that riches language of Paul, don't you? He already has spoken to these glorious riches earlier in the letter. And it's from the fountain of God's immeasurable, incalculable, abundant riches of glory that his strength and might and wisdom spring forth. And these are not monetary riches to be doled out. These are the eternal riches of blessing and salvation in Christ found in his word. And we are 100% dependent upon God to receive these riches. We are 100% dependent upon the Holy Spirit to fill us with these riches, the riches of God's strength and power in our inner being. Well, if you go to the nearest Barnes & Noble or bookstore, I think the one down in Sumner, you will find books inundated with the message, you are enough. You do you. Just look inside and follow your heart. Everywhere we turn, we find self-help mantras and mottos like these that are meant to fuel our souls, our inner being. And these mottos are a call to look within, to join the cult of self, and to find purpose and identity in what? Our own strength. In our own strength. And what is the outcome of all of this? Expressive individualism. The rise and triumph of inner feelings. We find that our identity and our inner self begins to get shaped by this message that we are enough. And what happens is many so-called Christians and the general culture slowly begin to engage, slowly, in a salvation through their own strength and self-help. But this is contrary to God's word here. This is contrary to this message. Paul is calling us here under the inspiration of the Spirit to look outside of ourselves for strength and for power. He is calling us to look to the Spirit to strengthen and renew our inner being. And Paul speaks of this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Paul writes, do not lose heart. Though our inner, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Every Christian in this room is fulfilling prophecy right now as we wither away on the outside and are renewed day by day. And this is fully, 100%, God's work in us. Here, Paul is saying, you aren't enough. You aren't strong enough spiritually or emotionally. You need the riches and the strength of the Holy Spirit, of God to fill you. Not just individually as Christians, the church, 
we are renewed and conformed to Christ in our inner being, not just individually, but as a family of believers. Have you considered that? Second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, the church is strengthened by the Spirit. And apart from Him, we are dead in sin and living the lie of salvation by self-help. May we look to Christ, His Word, and His Spirit to strengthen our inner beings and our inner being as a church. Well, this first petition is that the church, the temple of God, would be filled and renewed by God's strength. But Paul also prays that the church would be filled with Christ himself. And this brings us to point two. Point two, the presence of God. Look with me at verse 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. In order to better understand what Paul is telling us, what Paul is telling the church in Ephesus and the church here in Edgewood, we need to read and understand Scripture like Paul did, like Paul does, like Jesus does. And we need to look back, we need to trace the theme of God's intertwined dwelling and glory and presence in the storyline of Scripture. So I'm going to be our tour guide, and we're going to take a brief walkthrough of the Old Testament into the New, of God's redemptive plan. The storyline begins in Genesis 1-1 with those five familiar words. If you know them, say them with me. In the beginning, God created. Our story begins in a garden that God created. And God created the first man and woman, the first family, Adam and Eve. And he placed them in the garden, the garden home of Eden, to work and to keep it. And God dwelled with his people, spoke to them, and walked with them in the cool of the day. But Adam and Eve rebelled. They threw off God's authority. Eden became a self-declared autonomous zone. Became chop. Paradise was lost. And from that point on, there was separation between the holy and the unholy, between the infinite and the finite, between God and man. But God, being rich in mercy and grace and love, made a promise in Genesis 3.15 to send a seed, an offspring, a serpent-crushing son who would make a way for God to dwell with his people once again. But that promise wouldn't be fulfilled until much later, right? And so how did God dwell with his people between the promise made in the garden home and the promise kept in the Son, Jesus. Well, he did so through structures. He did so through structures. And we can trace God's structural dwelling and glory and presence from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. You don't have to turn to these passages, but feel free to write them down for further study. In Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9, God's people at that point in redemptive history in the storyline of Scripture are living in tents. And so God chooses to meet them where they are and to live in a tent, a sanctuary structure, a tabernacle with them. And when the structure was complete, we read in Exodus 40 
that God's glory, his presence filled the tent tabernacle and God dwelt with his people once again. But then we fast forward in our Bible. We fast forward to when God's people come out of Egypt and out of the wilderness and they build more permanent places. And God trades the tent tabernacle for a what? A temple. A temple. And we see in 1 Kings where Solomon, King David's son, builds God's temple. And in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 through 11, we read, When the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue to minister. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God was present and dwelled with his people. Alas, physical structures don't last forever, right? Physical structures break down. And so as we fast forward in our Bible into the New Testament, we arrive at John 1, verse 14. And what do we read? We read these words, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what happened here in the storyline of Scripture? God moved from dwelling with his people in structures in the Old Testament to his son in the New Testament. And his son, Jesus, is God with us himself. God made his house dwell and revealed his glory through Jesus. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God made his house in the Son, who is himself the temple, as we read of in John chapter 2, when Jesus says, tear this temple down, I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And everyone's like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? When we fast forward in our Bibles and we arrive at our passage this morning, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would strengthen and renew God's people so that, check this out, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So once again, just as God dwelt with his people through structures in the Old Testament and then came and dwelled with his people through the Son in the New Testament, he now dwells in the saved the church, from structure to the son to the saved. Do you see this? Jesus changes everything. And the plan, since before the foundations of the earth, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, has always been centered around Christ and his bride, the church, the son, and the saved. That's incredible. And all who believe in the gospel and who are living in ongoing repentance and faith are saved and Christ literally dwells in them. It doesn't get any better than that. Christ literally dwells in the saved. And if you're in here today and you don't, you don't know Jesus, you're thinking Genesis, Exodus, 1 Kings, it's all, What? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't know the God of this book, well, let me invite you to hear the good news of the gospel that will allow, allow Christ to dwell in you today. Friend, you were created by God and you were created for God. You were created to be a dwelling place for Christ. And if you were to die today, if you are outside of Jesus, outside of his family, 
not covered by his blood, then you, you would go to a terrible place called hell. But God, being gracious and merciful, sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the promise of Jesus. And on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserve for our rebellion back in that garden home. As a substitute, he died in our place. He took the punishment of your sin and mine upon himself. But three days later, he got up from the dead. He was resurrected and he later ascended into heaven where he presently reigns in glory and power. And he will one day return. And on that day, there will only be two kinds of people, those in Christ and those outside of Christ, those in the family of God and outside the family of God. So there's only one response to this good news, friend, only one response, and that is repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward Christ in faith by grace today. And when you do this, Christ will dwell in you like that. You were made a son, a daughter of the kingdom of God and part of the family of God. You are made one of these blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, united, saved, and sealed people in Christ by the power of the Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the truth that's proclaimed in this room every week. And it's the truth that we never get over. And it's this truth that God has made a way to dwell with his people through Christ and the Spirit. If you have questions, I'll be standing in the back after service. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about Jesus. And if you don't want to talk to me after the service, then talk to someone around you in a seat near you. They would love to tell you as well. Well, it's in the gospel message where God's love that is beyond comprehension is ultimately displayed, isn't it? This is where Paul goes next. It is his love that fills the church, the family, and the dwelling place of God. And it's this love that changes hearts and roots and grounds the church. This is what we see in the second half of verse 17. Look there with me. It's fascinating that Paul uses two words there in regard to this love. He says rooted and grounded. Why both verbs, Paul? What's up? Well, rooted in love is to be firmly planted and deeply rooted in not just any love, but God's love. While grounded in love is not to just stand upon the foundation, but to be in and a part of the foundation. Paul wants us to be completely clear. To have Christ dwell in you is to be filled with the perfect, unceasing, unwavering, rooting and grounding love of Christ. And to have the presence of Christ is to have the presence of his love in you and working through you. But there's more. Verses, seven, uh, verses 18 and 19, Paul tells us three truths that describe this love that connect God's promise to this unique otherworldly love in Christ. This is that higher love that one song talked about. In these verses, we see, first, God's love is all-encompassing. We see that it's all-surpassing, and we see that it's all-consuming. First, God's love 
is all-encompassing. This is what we see in verse 18. I'm not sure how you personally describe God's love, but know this. It is bigger and greater than you could possibly imagine. It is bigger and greater and more beautiful than can be described. It is so magnified and glorious and omnidirectional and multidimensional that Paul speaks of it in boundless terms. For it is a love that has more breadth and more length and more height and more depth than we can possibly imagine. I don't know about you, but I can't wrap my mind around that. And Paul knows that we don't have the strength to comprehend this love naturally. And so he prays for what? Supernatural strength to be able to comprehend this kind of love, this kind of boundless love. So let's make this the prayer for our church. Let's make Paul's words the prayer for our church daily, weekly, monthly, annually, until we pass into glory. God's love is all-encompassing. And second, it is all-surpassing. It is all-surpassing. We see this in the first half of verse 19. Look there with me. How in the world do we know and understand the unknowable? Something that surpasses our knowledge. Isn't it interesting that Paul says that? Here's what God's love is. It's beyond your comprehension. Again, we can't naturally do this. But here's the connection between this prayer and Paul's first prayer in chapter 1. Within that prayer in chapter 1, Paul prayed that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened. That you would have a spirit of wisdom and knowledge. Beloved, we are, we are solely dependent upon God to supernaturally open our eyes to this sort of love. To be able to behold the incomprehensible, boundless love of Christ. The Spirit must do this work, and we are fully dependent upon Him. He must do this work in us, in our family members' lives, in our friends' lives, in our neighbors' lives. Only the Spirit can reveal this surpassing, all-surpassing love of Christ, which is most clearly displayed in that gospel that gospel that I extended a moment ago. God's love is all-surpassing. And third, second half of verse 18, God's love is all-consuming. It's pretty incredible that just shy of 30% of the words to the letter of Ephesians are found also in Colossians. It'd be fun exercise for you to read Ephesians and Colossians side by side and see where they interconnect. It's really fun. And it's incredible in Colossians, we read, for in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we also read in Colossians, for in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily and you have been filled with him. Can we just stop and think about that for a moment? Let's just pause for a moment and think about that. Christ dwells in his people, which means To have Christ is to have the fullness of God, which means that it is possible for the infinite to be in the finite by God's grace. What a jaw-dropping truth. It's incredible. God's love is all-consuming. But there's a, a key phrase in here that I want us to dial in on just for a moment. The key phrase in verse 18, with all the saints. 
Paul's prayer is not just for individual Christians here. Paul's prayer is not an individual for individual Christians to be renewed, conformed, strengthened, and given power to grasp the incomprehensible love of God in Christ, though he wishes that individual Christians would. This is Paul's prayer for the church, the body of Christ. We cannot miss this. Christ doesn't just fill people. He has filled a people, a people, global and local, and it's called the church, and he has filled them with the indwelling love of Jesus. And we may now not be able to exhaustively understand this love, but we can truly know this love by the word, through the gospel, and also, as Paul has told us earlier in this letter, through the church. So look at your Bible and continue to plumb the depths of God's love. Look at the gospel and plumb the depths of God's love. Look at the church, the family of God, the place where you can also see the fullness of Christ dwelling and God's love here. So look around this room for a moment. This is the church, the place where Christ dwells by the Spirit. And God's presence and love is real and compelling when all the saints together love one another well and dwell with one another well. So consider your heart and love for the church. Consider how you prioritize not just the church, but particularly the local church. Consider how you give yourself and serve in the midst of this church. Consider the ways that you can lovingly engage and prioritize the ministries here of EBC, men's ministry, women's ministry, care group ministry, the list goes on. Consider your heart and love for this church, the family of God. Blood family, just an aside, in the context of this prayer, blood family is an incredible gift from God. But consider how you can love and care the other blood family, the family of Christ, here at EBC. I see this happening in our midst, beloved. It encourages me. I'm thankful. And I pray that it continues and it grows. Well, here's Paul's summary point of these verses. Where Christ's presence is, there Christ's love is also. So may we as a church continue to pray for the strength of God in Christ and the presence of God in Christ and the power of God to the glory of Christ. And that brings us to point three. Point three, the power of God. And this will be the shortest point this morning. God's power is a culminating result of his strength and presence. God's power is a culminating result of his strength and his presence. Where his strength and presence meet, there his power is displayed. And at the climax of this prayer, Paul offers a benediction, a blessing, much like the ones you hear at the close of each service, each Lord's Day, here at EBC. And this benediction centers on this. It centers on Paul prays, Paul is praying that God's power would fill the church, the home of God. 
But power is interesting, isn't it? It's so desired and is so often misused. I mean, there's a reason that one of the greatest theologians of all time, Spider-Man's grandpa, said, with great power comes great responsibility. He understood that power attained is easily misused. But we in our world are obsessed with power, right? When we look around us from political power to people power to girl power to LGBTQ power to manpower, person power, human power, to books, shows, and films all about superpowers, power's all around us. Our world is obsessed with it. Even the church is, which is why you have many false teachers using power language to garnish the finances of the poor to spew a false gospel of health and wealth and prosperity if you attain the power of God for seven easy payments. But here's the deal. The first thing, the very thing the world's obsessed with is the very thing that causes so much tension and frustration and anger. Because if we talk about power, we've got to talk about authority. And in, in an, anti, an anti-authoritarian world, there's a lot of words there, In an anti-authoritarian world, the conversation is dicey. So how should we think about God's power biblically? Well, we should think about it linked with prayer, as Paul does. Look with me at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Let's stop there briefly. Ephesus was known as a powerful city. It was a port city, powerful leaders, a powerful goddess named Artemis. Temple of Diana stood at the center of Ephesus, and it was like the hub of the city. It created unity around it. And the power of Caesar, who was called the sovereign, was there in Ephesus. So in a world of Ephesus, power was everything, and we need to understand that for what Paul does here. And so Paul challenges the readers. He challenges our understandings of power by pointing us to the source of true power at the close of this prayer. He points us here to a better power, God's power, and this power is the bookends of the prayer. I don't know if you noticed. It's, we see God's power in verse 16. And then we see God's power here in verse 20. The nerdy word for this is inclusio. This is a power sandwich. And Paul is making it abundantly clear that we can do nothing without the power of God. More specifically, our prayers are nothing without the power of God. And I believe that Paul had Jesus' words here from John 15 on his mind. Let me read those just briefly. Just a couple verses. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Picking up those words, Paul wants us to see where we are unable, God is able. Where we are powerless, God proves to be powerful. And he's not just able and empowered to do some things. No, he is able to do everything far more abundantly. Far more abundantly than we ask or think. Beloved, what do 
weak Christians need? What do weary Christians need? What do wounded Christians need? The power of God. And we need to be reminded of the power of God. It's interesting that in the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's only one imperative. One. And that is remember. In this prayer, the Spirit is calling us to remember and rest in the power of God. And we are fully dependent upon Him for all things in all of life. Outside of God, we are poor and needy, weak and powerless. The church is poor and needy, weak and powerless. But we express our dependency upon Him in the way that we pray. And Paul is giving us the way and the words here to pray. Now I know that this is kind of difficult for some of us, this, this particular part of this benediction. It's challenging for some of us because so many prayers seemingly go unanswered, right? Whether it's a prayer for a job or need or a family member to be saved or someone to be healed, I know what it's like to pray and it seem not to be heard. But if we are God's children, part of his family in and through the Son, and he dwells in us, then it has been said that the truth of ask and you will receive will always be true. And what we receive is always what's best for us in accordance with his power and timing. Even when it doesn't seem to be the best. Some things in life are certain. This is one. This is one. So we should do as Paul does. We should run to God. We should run to him with our prayers, praises, and petitions, knowing that his power is at work in us and through us. Again, just stop and think about that for a moment. If you are indeed a Christian, God's power is alive in you. This means that the same power that created all things is at work in you. The same power that brings the spiritually dead to life is at work in you. The same power that spoke these words is at work in you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is at work in you. This ought to lead us to the praise of God. We ought to follow Paul's lead here. All theology ought to lead us to doxology. Everything that we know about God ought to lead us to the praise and glory of God. And this is where Paul lands in this prayer. This is where he lands. He declares to him, that is to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The power and glory of Christ fills the church and is revealed through the church. So the church, this messy, broken, and imperfect family, saved by grace, exists to display the manifold wisdom and power of God. The church exists to display this all-encompassing, all-surpassing, and all-consuming love of God. 
The church exists to bring glory to God. And the church exists to proclaim to the ends of the earth. So that more and more generations, more families, same word, more families hear the good news of the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus. What a joy and a privilege it is to have this glory and power at work in us. That's what Paul is saying here. God is at work in us, saving us, sanctifying us, restoring us, reforming us. And he who has started a good work in you, a good work in us, will bring it to completion in accordance with his strength, in accordance with his presence, and in accordance with his power. Well, we should close. This prayer finds itself at a transitional moment in the letter. It really functions like a door on a hinge. Opening into the next section. See, in chapter th- chapters one through three, the spirit through the hand of Paul has told us who the church is in Christ. Who we are is the redeemed and new people of God, a new humanity, the church. And Paul has fueled us with doctrine in chapters one through three so that we might have and show love and devotion. And that's what's going on here. So we're about to see in chapters four through six the rest of the summer. Paul is gonna unpack what it looks like to live life together as the church. Paul is about to move us from doctrine to devotion, from indicative to imperative, from knowledge and being informed to practice and what it is to be transformed by the Spirit and by the gospel. But that's why this prayer is so important. Because the church, the home of Christ, the church then and now, global, local, Ephesus, Edgewood. The church needs the strength of God, the presence of God, and the power of God. We need this truth of this prayer to live together, to walk together, and to dwell together as the family of God in Christ. Oh, and we will do this with his help, by his grace, to the glory and power and blessing, and dominion, and honor of Christ forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good to make a way to dwell with sinners through the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the the salvation that has been planned before the foundations of the, of the earth. We thank you for the salvation that has been accomplished in the Son. And we thank you for the salvation that has been applied by the Spirit to the church. We give you all the praise for what you have done and are doing and will do for our good and for your glory. And it's in the name of the Son that we pray. Amen. Amen.